Hello, and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Derek Kiernan Johnson, or KJ, a professor of legal writing at the University of Colorado Law School. And we will discuss his article, The Potemkin Temptation, or the Intoxicating Effect of Rhetoric and Narrativity on American Craft Whiskey, which was published in Legal Communication and Rhetoric, the Journal of the Association of Legal Writing Directors. So welcome to the podcast, KJ. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Great. Well, as I mentioned in our correspondence, I really loved reading your article, which um, is funny and beautifully written and tells a fantastic story about sort of the history of American whiskey and this crazy phenomenon that you <laughs> have uh, have exposed to me that I always suspected, but wasn't quite a hundred percent sure. And now like the wool has been lifted from my eyes. Um, so I was wondering if you could start by just telling listeners who might not be as familiar with the history of American whiskey, sort of where it came from, how it developed and how we got to where we are today. Absolutely. And I'll do my best to keep this short. It's, it's a long history and it goes back to uh, colonial days, really. And uh, understanding that early history is helpful in understanding the current craft moment. Because back in the early colonial and post-colonial days, 18th century, uh, whiskey was really a craft product in the sense that it was made locally, often in farms uh, by individuals who uh, made it alongside their butter and their bread and their bacon and their other farm products. And not only was it made individually by these farmers, it was made with the local ingredients so that the whiskeys that would be found in, say, your part of the your neck of the woods uh, would be made from corn because corn grew locally. Further north, it might be rye as a principal grain. And further north than that, you might get barley and then wheat all throughout. So there's a sense in which the original whiskey of America spoke authentically of its place and was made on a very micro scale by individuals who were very close to the earth and the farming process. The 19th century happened and you had industrialization, specialization, and uh, large companies started to make whiskey using mass production and industrial scale on much broader uh, scales and a much higher degree of quality. And so these specialists were able to make whiskey that, uh, both in terms of the quality and the distribution and the marketing and uh, the cost that the local farmers couldn't make, the folks who just made whiskey as a way to preserve leftover grain or something that would be easy to trade from place to place because it was lightweight and didn't spoil, couldn't possibly compete with these new companies with their uh, fancy marketing techniques throughout the 19th century. Then the 20th century, again, painting with very broad brushes, the 20th century happened. You had prohibition, which, as we know, uh, had all sorts of effects on the alcohol industry, sending whiskey production underground, where, again, you had these uh, sort of home distillers, these farm distillers, sort of resuscitating the tradition, but without the 
without the know-how that their ancestors had. And more importantly, you had large criminal syndicates, cartels, creating whiskey, Al Capone and friends, uh, and distributing it throughout pro the Prohibition era. And some of that stuff wasn't that good. And so the quality suffered. There was a lack of knowledge. A lot of the companies simply that had been making well whiskey well throughout the 19th century uh, all of that knowledge base and experience and equipment dried up so that when prohibition did end, the American whiskey industry was at a severe disadvantage when compared to, say, the uh, European whiskey industry. Then, very quickly, World War II happened. And suddenly, uh, just as they were getting back off their feet after Prohibition, you had the problem of all the distilleries needing to make uh, not alcohol to drink, but alcohol for the war effort. And once again, they took a hit. Then suddenly, you have another moment of mass production after that. And in the same world that uh, the standardization of beer had occurred, where, as you might recall, back in the 70s or 80s, your taps at a a restaurant might be, well, you've got two kinds of beer, regular and light. Same thing with whiskey. There weren't a lot of whiskeys out there, and uh, also people were more interested in drinking vodka those days for complex reasons. Mm. And very quickly, to end the story, 1990s comes along, and the microbrewery uh, revolution happens. Suddenly, it's no longer a question of, well, domestic beer is Miller or Coors, and imported beer, oh, that's the good stuff. That's the broad range of flavors and styles. Suddenly, there is, um, instead of imported beer, there's domestic beer in all of those styles. And it is indeed made locally by small business owners using local ingredients. And so now we see microbreweries cross land. Then the last part of this already too long but yet too short story is in the last decade or so, or so micro distilleries have popped up. In an echo of the 1990s microbrewing revolution, you're Readers and listeners may have seen in their own hometowns a bunch of new micro distilleries making whiskey or at least selling whiskey that makes that same claim to the uh, to the ethos of authenticity that appears to participate in locavore farm to table culture. And here we are today. Okay, okay. So, I, for the purpose of our discussion. I think maybe we should focus on the post-war period because it seems like that's sort of the part of the whiskey story that's most germane to the problem that you're telling or the problem that you're identifying in, in your paper. So it's my understanding from your kind of telling of the story of the history of whiskey that there was like a period in the 50s and 60s, especially, and maybe even a little later into the 70s and 80s, where the popularity of whiskey in America really declined for a long time. And then more recently, it's kind of exploded especially in relation to bourbon and become, you know, wildly popular once again, and that that's played an important role in this phenomenon that you've identified. So I was wondering if you could say just a little bit uh, something about sort of where was whiskey production happening in that sort of interregnum period, the, the, the period when it, it, it sort of, it's, 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 uh, it's fortunes were low as it were. Yes, and it is a complicated history, but the main point, I think, is that uh, immediately after the war, there was actually a slight increase, at least with respect to the big brands, brands like Jack Daniels, Jim Beam, 
benefited from uh, the early 1950s and the role that America played uh, in terms of distributing American culture during and right after the war. But then there was a major consolidation in the industry and uh, closing of distilleries and more in the 1960s and definitely the 70s, where there just came to be a sense that Unlike the 50s, where these big brands were associated with the Rat Pack and with, uh, you know, America abroad in the 60s and early 70s, it just, for a variety of reasons, became less attractive to drink whiskey. Uh, vodka was very hot, gin less so, but in the same category. Uh, this had to do with ideas of, um, uh, you know, certainly the calories and the weight of the beverage uh, were of concern. And so people were more interested in vodka for uh, a variety of reasons. And what's interesting, that, that's a whole other story about vodka. But for a variety of reasons, there was consolidation in the industry. There was a shrinking into a few major brands. You can think of Jim Beam and Jack Daniels to the point that I can still remember in the as late as the early 1990s, seeing in most liquor stores only a single variety of rye on the shelf. There's a mm. single variety. You may recall um, it was Jim Beam's Yellow Label Rye was really the only rye whiskey on the shelf and is usually tucked away in the corner on the bottom shelf and collecting some dust. And so it simply wasn't mm. cool anymore. And there was also a generational change here. You had the baby boomers who associated rye whiskey, wheat whiskey, bourbon with their parents. And with, uh, you know, certainly anything you associate with your parents is, is by default not going to be cool. <laughs> and so they're since, oh, that's, that's what my grandpappy drinks out on the porch. I'm a person of the new generation. I'm going to drink vodka. I'm going to do, uh, do different things. And so there's a reaction against that. Uh, that sort of thing. Yeah. So in your paper, you talk about the craft beer revolution sort of sparking the craft spirit revolution, but also about how differences in the sort of capital costs of production um, affect market entry into both of those areas of of production. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the different the similarities and the differences between sort of craft beer and craft spirits. Yes, and the similarities are what set up a lot of these entrepreneurs to be tempted by this Potemkin temptation because at a, at first glance making whiskey looks a lot like making beer. In fact, the first few steps are identical. If you make a beer, to make a beer, you take some cereal grains, typically barley, but it could also be you know, wheat or oats or rye. You take those grains, you steep them, sort of like a tea, add some yeast, the yeast eat the sugars, create alcohol, and suddenly you have a beer. And this is something you can do at home. You can be a home brewer, and if you don't make it right, it may not taste that good, but you know, there are no major problems there. And so it's very easy to open up, fairly easy, <laughs> comparatively easy to open up a microbrewery uh, with some home brewing background, scale things up and tweak your recipe. You'll get feedback over the course of days or weeks. You can adjust the market demand if it turns out, oh, you know, this is a little, this doesn't taste exactly what I want to, want it to taste like. Your beer can be tweaked and you have a slightly new recipe a week later. If you open your doors and it mm. turns out that, oh, you know, I thought this was going to be our flagship beer, but no one's drinking it. It's this other side beer, which is twice as popular. Within a week or two, you can adjust demand. 
Now, the problem with micro distilling is a lot of people simply thought it was the second verse, same as the first. They thought, ooh, micro brewing, that was the 90s. This is the 2010s. It's distilling. We'll do the same thing that we saw happen 20 years ago. However, there are two additional steps, two key steps in making whiskey that make it much harder to do for local entrepreneurs than, say, opening up a local cheese shop or a microbrewery. The first step is distillation itself. And the process of distillation, which is collecting the vapors off of the beer you just made, concentrating them, and then saving them in a separate container, is hard in the sense that there are a lot more variables involved, some of which we still don't understand, which affect the taste of the final product. And so you can't quite understand exactly what to change. It's not like making chocolate chip cookies where they come out and you're like, oh, just oh, you know, a little less sugar, a little more butter. It's hard to understand mm. what exactly happened. And secondly, it's very dangerous. In fact, home, although home brewing is legal and there's a vibrant home brewing community in the United States, home distilling is a federal felony. In fact, merely owning distilling equipment is technically a federal felony. And the reason for that is twofold. Number one, what you're doing that's dangerous in distilling is dangerous to yourself and your property because you're taking heat to create a highly flammable liquid by first turning it into a highly flammable gas. So you can see mm. how that could be problematic. Uh, and, <laughs> and secondly, unlike making beer, if you make a bad batch of beer, it's not going to taste that good. But other than a sour taste in your mouth, you won't get hurt. However, in the distilling process, if you don't do it the right way, the end product can be poison. It can literally make you blind or it can even kill people who drink it. And this happened during Prohibition with a lot of the criminal gangs who weren't that careful and people went blind or were killed and didn't have any recourse. And that's just the first step. The next step, and this goes more to the capital cost and sort of feedback loop problem, is even if you've successfully distilled a product that isn't poison and didn't cause a fire or blow up your lab, now you have to wood age it. Unlike vodka or gin or white rum, whiskey is aged in wood barrels for years. And this can be tricky because, again, it's dangerous. Now, not only do you have a highly flammable liquid, but you have gallons and gallons of that highly flammable liquid in wood barrels in a small space. So to this day, there are distillery fires. And secondly, it takes years. It takes years to have the process. So you need to figure out, well, where am I going to store it? And how am I going to understand? It's not like making cookies an hour later. Now, oh, I need to add a little bit of butter. It could be years before you know what your whiskey, your first whiskey tastes like. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So living in Kentucky, of course, I've been to a bunch of bourbon distilleries, right? Like uh, Buffalo Trace, like, you know, like, um, <clears throat> uh, gosh, where else? I mean, you know, they're, they're all over Kentucky, a yeah. b bunch of, b bunch of different ones. Right. And every time I go, I see where they, you know, distill the grains, or uh, rather where they ferment the grains on, on site. I see where they have the distilling columns, you know, where they're making the raw whiskey. You walk through the, you walk through the warehouses where they're full of 
giant barrels up to the, you know, up to the ceiling as far as you can see, like aging for years and years and years. And of course, I assume that's what it's like at every other like distillery around the country, right? Yes, that's what you would assume, wouldn't it? <laughs> and uh, it turns out that's not the case. And if you have toured a legit distillery where you've seen the distilling equipment, and more importantly, you've seen the rooms where all of that wood aging is taking place, you might be surprised that at least some of the local micro distilleries lack the equipment and warehousing space that you would expect given their production. Right. How can that be? Yes. And here is the main thrust of the article and where rhetoric and narrativity and uh, everyone's aspirations towards authenticity and interest in, in participating locavore culture come from. Uh, imagine yourself in a, in a liquor store large enough that it has a whole, a whole shelf of whiskeys. And you see a handful of rye whiskeys there. And you, you notice the diversity of labels. You see rye whiskeys from all over the place. It seems like there's a whole bunch of different people independently making rye whiskeys. You might be surprised to learn that, in fact, over 50% of the rye whiskeys brands in the United States today are over 128 different companies all have their whiskey both distilled and wood-aged in one single industrial alcohol plant. It's a generic recipe that's shipped out across the country to all of these uh, local locations. And why do they do that? I mean, that just seems so strange. I mean, if it's supposed to be a locally produced product, why are they buying this generic product produced elsewhere? You know, that's what really got me interested in this project in the first case. I noticed that some of the bigger cases seem, some of the more prominent cases seemed like your standard uh, misrepresentation, unfair trade practices, fraud cases. But then I noticed the phenomenon seemed much more widespread, first of all, and secondly, much more persistent. And so, so that's what led me down this rabbit hole. And my thesis is the reason this is such a widespread phenomenon and the reason it continues to persist even after company after company has gotten in trouble is because of the interest of these entrepreneurs in participating in the craft moment. It used to be that uh, you know, up until maybe the late 1980s, the folks who were involved in distilling came from distilling families down in your neck of the woods, uh, grew up in that culture, and uh, knew just how hard it was to make whiskey. Then, uh, in the more recent craft phenomenon, you had folks, some of which who spoke really rather candidly about saying, hey, listen, you know, we, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a lawyer, I went to an Ivy League school, or I'm a dot-com billionaire. Uh, certainly, if uh, someone down in the hollers of Kentucky without my pedigree or education can make this stuff, I can do this. They just assumed it would be as easy to found a craft whiskey company as it would be to, find, to found a microbrewery. And it turns out that it is much harder. It's much harder to do than they imagined. And then the problem becomes, once, once you've set your mind on the idea that I want to participate in farm-to-table culture, and in particular, I want to make whiskey. I want to make whiskey in my hometown in a way that reflects the terroir of my local environment. That's what I want to do. I don't want to make vodka. I don't want to make beer. I don't want to make uh, soap or hand towels or any other... Uh, any other uh, farmer's market product, I want to make whiskey. 
you start off thinking, oh, easy enough. But then once you learn how hard it is to not only make well, but how long these feedback loops are, that you're talking about years before you know not only whether you've made good whiskey, but which particular whiskeys are popular, it can become very tempting to cut corners. And one story that these Potemkin distillers tell themselves is, well, you know, just until we're up on our feet, just for the first few years, we're going to use someone else's whiskey, but eventually we're going we're to make it all ourselves. This is just the stopgap measure. This is just so that we're able to make payroll and pay all our bills while we actually make our own whiskey. The problem there is you can end up getting reliant on the ease and, and the cost savings of buying your already distilled, already aged whiskey from someone somewhere else. And there are also opportunities to fool people and even fool yourself by the language you use on your bottle labels and in your marketing. For instance, let's say you are buying your whiskey finished from one of these giant companies. It will come to you by rail, maybe on the back of a semi-semi-truck, to your local area at barrel proof, which is stronger than bottling proof. So you will need to add some water to dilute your whiskey to 80 proof, 85 proof, more of a drinkable range. So what water to use? It might be filtered municipal tap, which might just happen to come from the famous river that runs through your town or a famous uh, mountain, something notable. In which case, you can legitimately say in all of your marketing that uh, this, this craft whiskey is made with water from... Boulder Creek or from so-and-so, <laughs> you know, you've got local water in there. Yeah. It's true. And yeah. Then yeah. You can say it's hand bottled on site, on Main Street. And it's true. It is hand bottled. It is made with local water. Um, but that's not the whole story. Right, right. I guess made with local water sounds better than diluted with local water as well, doesn't it? Yes, and it's a bit of a tell for anyone that wants to peruse the liquor store shelves and look for words such as hand bottled and, you know, cut with, made with, uh, including local water. That might give you a sense of, hmm, mm. maybe this is one of those Potemkins. Yeah. So in the narrativity sort of scheme mm -hmm. of things, you tell some really interesting stories about how this actually happens in your paper. And I was wondering if you could kind of spend a couple minutes dwelling on one of those and the sort of the narratives that these sort of Potemkin distillers tell themselves in order to justify what they're doing. Sure. And there's a lot of narrative and rhetoric theory, uh, but maybe a specific story such as that of Templeton to make it more concrete uh, might be helpful. So uh, one, yeah. of, one, I'll tell the Templeton story as quickly <laughs> as quickly as I can. Yeah. Uh, and this yeah. is a compelling one. And it's one that uh, Chuck Howdery, one of the leading whiskey uh, authors and critics and the lawyer himself has described as tragic. And it is in many ways a tragedy. Here's what happened. The town of Templeton, Iowa, was famous during Prohibition for making whiskey. The locals were, you know, sub rosa, of course, making incredibly good whiskey. And the story went not that these uh, Templeton locals' whiskey was so good that even uh, Al Capone enjoyed it and somehow got it shipped over to Chicago. And they even say even when Al Capone was put in jail at Alcatraz, he still wanted that famous Templeton whiskey. Then Prohibition ended, but those hardy Templeton Iowans continued to make their illegal whiskey under the table and pass along these traditions 
and know-how and recipe from generation to generation. And then, in the beginning of the micro-distillering boom around 2006, a heroic native returned to Templeton to resurrect and bring up into the light this recipe. And as the story goes, this local entrepreneur, you know, figured out how to talk to the old timers, learn from them, and found some faded scrap of paper that included a Prohibition-era recipe. And using this Prohibition-era recipe and the know-how of the locals, he created Templeton Rye Whiskey Company. And it was extremely successful. And the idea was, wow, how wonderful that Templeton, with this Prohibition-era past, is now legitimately making above ground this new yet old whiskey that you can buy Templeton Rye if you see it on the shelf and know that you are getting a product that's made using a prohibition era recipe that is that comes from Templeton, the recipe, and that is made in Templeton so that there's a sense of this is an authentic product that speaks of a particular place and time. As you might imagine, Templeton turned out to be uh, Potemkin. It turned out that, indeed, uh, Templeton rye was not made in any meaningful sense in Templeton, Iowa. It wasn't distilled there. It was distilled at this giant food-grade alcohol plant in Indiana. And it wasn't wood-aged there. It was aged at this giant factory in Indiana. All they did was add some local water to dilute it down to 80 proof or whatever their bottling proof might be, 80, 83, something like that and then put their own labels on it and hand bottle it. And they did a great job with this aspect of the marketing. They didn't merely hand bottle it, but there were, you know, the church bulletin would invite people to stop by to help with the bottling. It was, you know, a local graphic artist designed the label using a picture they found in the historical archives. It was an amazing story and something that everyone wanted to be true. The label itself had prohibition gangsters on the front, the visual rhetoric of seeing a sepia-toned, old-fashioned sort of speakeasy image on the front of the bottle. Then on the back of the bottle, a three-paragraph story that describes the history of Templeton and its role in the Depression, and of course mentions the character of Al Capone. And then in the third act says, now brought to light in the as part of a micro distilling revolution here legitimately for the first time is authentic templeton rye whiskey wow and so what happened well they got busted <laughs> and uh <laughs> the way they got busted is another classic tell that folks can look for when they're trying to sniff out which of their own local whiskey companies are uh, potemkins and which ones are bona fide whiskey producers and i do want to emphasize there are bona fide micro distillers making whiskey the right way from hand, from soup to nuts. And those folks are definitely worth recognizing and supporting. The way that uh, Templeton got in trouble was, well, first of all, they were selling a four-year-old whiskey almost immediately after they opened their doors. So um, unless they have a uh, what, the, what did Hermione Granger have? One of those uh, time time turners? <laughs> it's hard to see how you <laughs> make a four-year-old whiskey immediately. Then the particular mm. blend of the whiskey was suspect. Uh, the whiskey, as I mentioned, comes from, from various cereal grains, a mix of barley and rye and wheat and corn and, and other things. And their particular recipe seemed very unusual. And people were thinking, well, why would you combine those particular grains in that amount together. That's very odd. 
and one person realized, ah, the reason you're combining those particular grains and you're able to sell this old whiskey so quickly is that they were able to find the source. Long story short, they found the source, and the whiskey they were using from this big factory in Indiana was actually whiskey that wasn't intended to be sold as a standalone whiskey at all. It was a, a predecessor company who simply used this as an ingredient in blends and had some on hand and were happy to unload it. So what happened was there were scandals in the newspaper, um, and they were sued. There were three separate class action lawsuits. There was a global settlement. They had to change their labels and set aside $2.5 million to pay anyone who had bought Templeton whiskey on the assumption that they were buying. They're paying a premium price for an authentic premium product rather than getting a, a generic industrial one. Yeah. So, I mean, one thing that struck me about the story as well was, you know, that they, they say that they're producing a sort of whiskey based on a prohibition era recipe. It's really hard for me to believe that bootleggers would be, would be aging whiskey for four years. Right. Yes. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I mean, didn't anyone find that suspicious? You, you know, that's a good point. That is one of the many things that's suspicious. The idea that, listen, it's one thing to evoke the idea of prohibition as part of Americans, America's romantic past. But the truth was the moonshine made during the prohibition era really wasn't that good. And it certainly, uh, even if it didn't make you blind or kill you, it, it was pretty, pretty hot, not all that smooth. And yes, it was not well aged for the most part. Although certainly there were individuals who would have space in their basements and be able to sort of age it in wood, but it's, it's a lot harder than it looks to make a really good whiskey. So you're, you're right. You're right. That's one of the many tells that suggested things are not what they seem. Yeah. So one thing I've always been suspicious of, and your, your paper really drove this home for me. You know, I saw this pl proliferation of, some that were able to call themselves bourbons, I guess, but a lot of the, they were for the, the, the product is whiskey, presumably because they didn't make it in a way that would qualify as bourbon or didn't age it long enough for it to be legally called bourbon. And they were selling it for these extraordinary pr prices for products. I was like, you know, since when did upstate New York or whatever have like a, you know, a, <laughs> a recent notable, you know, tradition of producing this kind of product? And my experience was, you know, that, that a lot of them were of sort of middling quality when actually tasted, despite the sort of uh, extremely high price point. And now I realize that presumably some or all of those were probably this same generic product that that you're talking about. So it's this kind of, you know, ersatz luxury product that really what you're paying for is the bottle and the label and the story more than anything more than anything else. But I'm wondering, like, it, what is, like, is that product ever sold as truly a generic whiskey? And if I wanted to get the generic one, what would I look for? Yes, uh, it is. And this comes to the question, uh, there's nothing inherently wrong with purchasing pre-distilled, pre-aged whiskey from someone else. What's wrong is not being honest about it. And certainly there's a broad, the Potemkins are a subcategory of the broader category, non-distiller producers. And certainly if you want to be a non-producer distiller, someone who says, 
not the seller producer and say, listen, we did not make this. We are merely bottling it and blending it, perhaps changing a little bit. Be transparent. Uh, my favorite example of one of these uh, is Notter Bourbon. Notter, K-N-O-T-T-E-R, but pronounced not our. So not our bourbon. And their subtag is, we didn't distill it, not a drop, exclamation point. And so, sir, sure, absolutely. If you want to be transparent and say, what we do is buy whiskey from somewhere else, and then we either give it a secondary aging in maybe an unusual, uh, oh, well, we, we're in Sonoma County. We're going to buy our whiskey from Indiana, but we're going to give it a little bit of secondary aging in some ex-Zinfandel casts. Or, oh, we're from, uh, we're, we're going to blend it in a way that's unusual. Great. That's fantastic. And in fact, in Scotch whiskey, there's a very long and hallowed tradition of independent bottling in Scotch. The problem is the, is the, is the misleading stuff, the funny stuff. Yeah. So, so if I or listeners as whiskey or bourbon consumers want to make sure that we're buying, you know, the, the real thing, as it were, what, what should we look for? You know, that's tricky. It's the easiest thing to do is also the hardest. And that's when you are in a uh, liquor store to bring your phone with you <laughs> and unfortunately do a little bit of research uh, because you can never be in, often you can't be entirely sure. But one thing you can start with is uh, if you're in a liquor store, and this is different than say being in a restaurant or a bar or where you're going to have less information, if you can actually pick up the bottle and spend some time with it, the first thing to notice is, ooh, if this is a new uh, whiskey company, I haven't heard of these guys. How interesting. There's now a new whiskey company in my hometown or in the ski town that I'm visiting for the, the uh, holidays. Notice how, what the age statement is on the bottle in the front. If it's six years, ten years, something like that, maybe four years even, be a little suspicious. Another easy tell, and this goes towards my recommendations for regulatory reform, is to turn the bottle around and look down very deep beneath the UPC symbol, beneath the standard government disclosure about alcohol not being good for your health. Look for the words distilled in state name. Because there is a federal regulation which states that if a whiskey company has the whiskey that it's if this whiskey that a whiskey company is selling is distilled in another state, it must disclose that somewhere on the bottle label. It's usually tucked away down at the bottom. And so if you see the words distilled in Indiana and you are not in Indiana, then you can be pretty darn sure that this is a Potemkin that was made somewhere else. Okay. So, so KJ, in closing, I was wondering if you could say a little something about what you think the regulatory authorities should do about these Potemkin distilleries? Because in some ways it sounds like they're not entirely doing something wrong, but they are doing something surreptitious or misleading, and they're not giving consumers what consumers think they're getting. So what should be done about that? You know, uh, the last part of my article is, as, as is the custom, the recommendations for reform, and I'm not as optimistic as I might like to be, but I do think there's some things that can be done. What complicates all of this, and this is more of the rhetoric and narrative part of the piece, is that consumers are already looking for authenticity. They are primed to want to believe the story that they see on the bottle shelf or on the cocktail menu. Also, the producers, for the reasons we discussed, want this story to be true. 
So you're already entering a situation in which someone, again, in a picture of the liquor store shelf, you pull the bottle down, it has a beautiful label on the front using all sorts of techniques of visual rhetoric, you turn it around and there's a narrative there which uh, sets you up to believe a certain kind of story. Even if there's that little disclaimer at the bottom and you know what distilled in Indiana means, you may not be in a position to want to believe it. So two of my reforms are, number one, amend the process for what these companies do when they submit a bottle label. Each bottle label has to go through a regulatory approval process, and the current process involves a blanket disclaimer, you know, a blanket attestation. I hereby attest, says the lawyer or the company president, that I've complied with all the laws and everything I said on this form is true. That was sufficient back until this microdistillery boom because the folks who were signing those were insiders. It was an in-house counsel for Jim Beam or someone who was a whiskey law specialist. They knew what questions to ask their producers, and the producers knew the rules. The problem now is a lot of these new Potemkins don't realize that what they're doing violates the law, and their lawyers don't know what questions to ask with this blanket attestation. So what I would do would be, without overdoing it and making the form uh, so complex that it backfires, break down the attestation to at least a handful of lines that the lawyer would have to initial. I hereby attest something specific. These grains are from this particular place, not just the state, but something more specific. I hereby attest that this was distilled in this particular place. I hereby attest that it was wood-aged in this particular place. Place. So use sort of the think fast, think slow uh, process to create each of those new lines you need to initial. Well, and as we know, you can go too far. We've all seen contracts where we just end up initialing everything and not really reading it. So you, you'd want to be careful not to have too many of these lines. But that would at least force the lawyers and the producers to slow down and think of through, okay, of these four to five, I need to sign each one. That also would really give evidence to uh, class action attorneys, to industry watchdogs to say, you didn't just sign a black blanket as attestation, you filled in the blank. This whiskey was wood aged at city and state. You had to slow down enough to sign that. And so we've got you there. The second major reform proposal I would have is, again, being conscious of the limits of labeling. You can look at the attempts to regulate cigarettes or fast foods or other things through nutrition or warning labels and see uh, that there are limits to what we can do for rhetorical and narrative and other reasons. I would expand the disclaimer. Don't simply say you need to say distilled in, in other state. That's not enough. Something closer to a nutritional label, which might just have four parts. Disclose on the label, the back of the label, sort of nutrition facts style. This whiskey was uh, made from grains from specific place here. The grains in this whiskey came from city-state. This whiskey was distilled in city-state, barrel-aged in city-state, and bottled in city-state. For those whiskeys that are proud that all four of those steps took place in their town, they should probably be delighted to include that on the attestation. Mm -hmm. And for others, being forced to break down those different steps and include them on a not-too-comprehensive uh, label would give you the cues you need to at least stop and think, huh, even if I'm a consumer who doesn't understand what this means, when I see that this whiskey 
Uh, the first three steps of the process happened in Indiana, and only the last one happened in my hometown. That should give me pause. Mm. Yeah, that's a great idea. So, KJ, thanks so much for, for talking with me today. It's been really a pleasure. Well, thank you so much. I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you for the opportunity. Well, that's the story about the man. Uh, he bought some uh, liquor. And it was pretty atrocious. And so he called in his friend and said, I got a present for you. And so he gave the liquor to his friend. And after some days, he met his friend and said, uh, How was that liquor I gave you? His friend said, Well, said it's just right, just right. He said, What do you mean, just right? He said, Well, I mean that if it had been any better, you wouldn't have given it to me. And if it had been any worse, I couldn't have drunk it. <laughs> <laughs>